I think it's good to have options, don't you? I mean, when I go to a restaurant, I want a menu that's uh, rather diverse, so I have an opportunity to choose the same thing every time I go, which is usually what happens. I, I like options. Uh, I'm glad that I didn't live in a culture where my parents chose my wife for me. I loved my parents. They were great people. I'm sure they would have made a pretty decent choice. But I kind of wanted to do that myself. And I wanted to look at the various options out there. And I think one of the best decisions certainly I ever made. So I'm glad for choices and options. Whether it's in education or churches. To have a variety of choices is a wonderful thing. Robert Half once said that to... Uh, have choices, it's easy to make decisions when you have only good options to choose from. But the problem with choices and options is that sometimes they're extremely difficult and even some of the choices could be dangerous. Imagine the family with a loved one in the hospital and the doctor comes and says your loved one is seriously ill. We need to operate. If we operate, they will probably die. If we don't operate, they will certainly die soon. You've got the choice. It's not very, very good options presented to you, but you've got to choose something. And it's interesting, when we come to the scriptures, we've got this sense of God guiding and controlling, which he does as a sovereign God. This is part of the mystery. Man plans his way, but God directs, controls his steps, and yet the Lord offers to us options. Just like he does in the book of Joshua, chapter 24. Let's turn to Joshua 24. We're at the end of our study in this wonderful, amazing Old Testament book that has its New Testament counterpart in the book we call Ephesians. The, the theme of this series is to enter in. In other words, God has given you the land. Now you need to take it. And conversely, as Christians, God has given to us many good and wonderful promises and we must seize them by faith. We must possess our possessions. A phrase taken out of the small Old Testament book of Obadiah. We noticed in Joshua 23 that Joshua's at the end of his life. Probably within weeks of dying. He's going to die at the age of 110. So he's an old guy. He says farewell to primarily the leaders in chapter 23 and urges them to be faithful. God has been faithful in all of his promises. You be faithful to his word. But now he gathers all the people. The leaders are there too, but this is primarily now the whole nation. And notice the setting, verse 1, Joshua 24. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, he summoned the leaders, elders, judges, officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Think about the scene. Shechem is that valley that we talked about back in Joshua chapter 8, 
that was surrounded by two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And it was there they rehearsed the covenant of God. They went over the promises and the requirements of following God and being faithful to God. And one mountain was filled with half the people and they talked about the blessings and the other mountain filled with the other half of the people and they talked about the curses and it was in this wonderful place, one of the most beautiful places in all of Israel that they came back to renew the covenant. Maybe a million people sitting around in this natural amphitheater and old Joshua comes to the forefront and speaks to the people. There's something very significant about this place because when Abraham was called from Ur the Chaldees and followed God to a new land, his first resting place in Canaan was at Shechem. And there at Shechem, he built an altar. And there at Shechem, God gave him the wonderful promise of Genesis chapter 12. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all nations. It was there in that place, it mentions a great tree. Near where Abraham built the altar. I'm not sure that tree would still be there 500 years later. I suppose it depends on what kind of tree it is, but they're in the same place. And it is interesting when you get to the end of Joshua in verse 26... This chapter, verse 26, it talks about a large oak. There are stones there already erected, according to Joshua chapter 8, to remind the people of the covenant that God had made with them and of their commitment to follow him. They come back to the same place. I suppose that's like us maybe going back to Plymouth Rock or some place where the founding of our country or some significant battle of independence took place to rehearse and remind ourselves of all that has happened in our history. By the way, Shechem is the same place where Jacob bought ground years later and buried the loved ones, the ancestors, the forefathers. With silver, he bought these, uh, this property from Hamor, Shechemite. And it was also there that he buried the household gods that the people had been carrying since all the time before Abraham. They still had false gods that they were nurturing and cuddling and bowing down to. But Jacob buried them at Shechem. And that's very significant. He buried them under a large oak. And they're now back to the same place. They've been summoned by Joshua. And notice in verse 1, they present themselves to the Lord. Almost 500 years after the promise was given to Abraham in that same place, they're now back and they want to renew the covenant. And it's a sacred time. It's not a holy place because there's a shrine there. It's called a holy place because of all the rich memories of what God has done. He called, they came, and notice 
Verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And then as a mediator between God and the people, Joshua speaks as though he is God talking. And you have a wonderful review of Hebrew history from verse 2 all the way through verse 13. You see, this is the time when the covenant is being reflected upon. It's covenant reflection. It's a time of review. It's a time to look back and remember what God has done. And that's always a good thing for us to do. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done for you in your own history. By the way, this chapter is going to follow the natural uh, ingredients, elements of an ancient Middle Eastern covenant. So the people are summoned and they're in the presence of God Almighty. And the very first thing you do before a covenant is made is to review the history, to recite what has gone on before and that's exactly what the Lord does. Now when he does this, two important truths come out. The first one is this. All of the success that the Israelites have experienced is due to God's grace. In other words, God did it. When you read through these thir first 13 verses, you are amazed at how many times it says, Joshua speaking for God, I gave you Isaac as a son. I brought you into this land of promise. I took you down to Egypt. I afflicted the Egyptians. It's all here. 21 different verbs, says one scholar. All first person singular dominate the text. I did this, I did that, because it's God Almighty who accomplished everything. Oh yes, they fought as the instrument in God's hand. But can the sword say to the soldier, I won this battle? No, it was God using his people to accomplish his purposes. And I like what Charles Price, a Bible teacher, says. There are no grounds upon which Israel could congratulate themselves for conquering Canaan had it not been for the mighty grace of God. And if you jump down to verse 12, the Lord tells them this. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. I did it. God was indispensable for their past and he is indispensable for their future and a covenant is a time for us to reflect upon the goodness of God. How often do you do that? I hope you take time, maybe on the Lord's Day, to look back and praise God for all that he has done. But by the way, when you look at these first 13 verses, not only did God do it, but God took his time doing it. <laughs> it says that uh, Abraham was given Isaac in verse 4, but Abraham had to wait 25 years for a promise. And then Isaac was given sons, twin boys, Jacob and Esau, but that took another 60 years. So after 85 years, after the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, all he had to show for it were baby twin boy, grandsons, and that was it. 
And then in verse 4, I took you down into Egypt. Verse 5, I sent Moses and Aaron and I afflicted the Egyptians. There's 400 years between those two verses. This is a condensing of time, which you have to do in any summary or review. But God is just letting his people know that I did it, but I did it in my own time, according to my own plan. By the way, the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 of a seed that is through you, all the nations will be blessed. And Galatians tells us that's a reference for Christ. That promise wouldn't be fulfilled for 1,500 years. God takes his time. Now, I don't know about you, but this is one of the hardest things that I experience being a follower of Jesus is that my timetable is far different than his. God takes his time in developing his story and he takes his time in developing his people. He's not constrained by three score and ten. <laughs> no, one day with him is like a thousand years to us. And his plan is perfect and his timing exquisite. And yet, I don't like it. How arrogant is that for me to say I don't like it? It just shows there's too much of me still living. Isaiah 5 verse 19, Woe to those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we can see it. Get going, God. Have you ever said that? Yeah, we, we bow our heads in confession and say, woe is me, I am an arrogant sinner <laughs> when I don't let God be my God. Going back to special places and recalling God's amazing works instills in us gratitude and brings forth from us Praise. And that's why the Bible is so filled with review. This is what God did. He took them down to Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. He took them through the Red Sea when it split. All of that is mentioned here. In, in verse 8, he brought them into the land of the Amorites. Now you've got Joshua taking the group across. And he fought for them. He delivered he delivered them from Balak, the king of Moab, verse 9, and from Balaam. Remember the guy in Numbers, Balaam, the prophet, who was paid to curse the people of God, but every time he prayed, he blessed them? Remember that guy? I forgot to mention, in chapter 13, verse 22, he was killed in one of the battles of Joshua's campaign. They executed the dude, and he got what was coming to him. But God did that as well. Jericho, verse 11. Verse 12, I sent the hornet ahead of you. What in the world is that? Uh, Bible scholars, as far as I can tell, can't agree. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, bees represent invading armies. So maybe it's an invading army. Someone says, no, it's a weapon. I have a hornet in my hand. But there's been no archaeological evidence to show what that weapon might have been. 
Some say it's the spirit of terror that comes upon people. And some say it's literally a swarm of hornets. God could have used any of those things. But he did it according to his plan. And he reminds them in verse 12, you didn't do it. Verse 13, so I gave you a land in which you did not toil, in cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from their vineyards and olive groves, groves that you did not plant. And 500 years of time is condensed into 13 verses and it all goes to the praise and glory of God. We need more time to look back and remember so that we can lift up our heads and praise. And that's exactly what they're doing. But now, notice the transition in verse 14. Now, says Joshua, we're going to go from what God did to what we need to do. From covenant reflection to covenant resolution. From looking back and remembering to now making a decision, a pivotal decision. Maybe a life-changing major decision. And Joshua says, now's the time. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness and throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates. That's the gods that Abraham and his people brought with him. And the gods that you served in Egypt. Now this is astounding to me. God brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and splits the Red Sea and they're carrying in their backpacks gods, idols from the Egyptians. Now the whole plagues demonstrated that the sovereign God of the universe is greater than any of the gods of Egypt. Yet I've got them in my backpack just in case. How ludicrous is that? It's about as dumb as you and I serving gods instead of Jehovah. Loving people more than God. Loving recreation more than God. Loving wealth and power and fame and comfort and all these other things that are our idols. You know, to serve God, you've got to get rid of them. You've got to die. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. The first part about fearing God and the first part about making a strong decision is to get rid of your other gods. They also mention the gods of the Amorites, verse 15. So you've got three categories of gods from Ur of the Chaldees, from the Egyptians, and now from the nations they're destroying, these people were idol collectors. And you know, sometimes it's difficult for us to determine what is an innocent hobby or passion and what is an idol. I have nothing against boats but there once was a guy who bought a boat. It was a nice boat, wanted to ski. The only time he could ski was on the weekends because he had to work throughout the week. And so his weekends got longer, started missing church, but had fun with the boat. And finally God convicted him. And one day he decided to sell the boat. And so he put it out in his front yard with this sign, idle for sale. <laughs> 
That's exactly what it became. You can have a boat and not have it as your idol. But it can be your idol. So get rid of all of your gods. Throw them away. The gods your ancestors served. The gods the Amorites served in whose land you are living. And then notice the last part of verse 15. Here's this famous phrase. Joshua says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He had told them to choose this day whom you will serve. Make your choice. The God of the ancestors or Egypt or the Amorites or the God who did all the amazing things that we just recalled. I mean, it sounds insane to compare. Why would anyone choose anything except the living God? Joshua's not saying that you can go ahead and serve these gods and be blessed. He's just saying if you choose not to serve the living God, then it really doesn't matter what you serve. The end is going to be disaster, whatever your God is. All the other gods are useless and powerless, so it makes no difference if you decide not to serve the living God. Choose. Options are good. Sometimes they're dangerous. And if we make the wrong choice, it has eternal consequences. So consider the facts. Make your choice. Be committed to that choice. It's irreversible. You say, well, I don't want to choose. Indecision is, in and of itself, a choice. You either serve God or you don't. That's what Joshua is saying. I mean, here's his final words, and he's putting passion in everything he helps he, he has into it. Choose this day whom you will serve. And he draws a line in the sand. Now, the people respond with great enthusiasm and sincerity. Basically, three different times they say, We'll serve the Lord. It starts in verse 16. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord God himself who brought us up and our parents out of Egypt and the, from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. And He protected us on our entire journey among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites in whose land we live. We too will serve the Lord. But you know, the response seemed rather glib to Joshua. So notice what he says in verse 19. Joshua said, you're not able to serve the Lord. <laughs> he thought their response was just too shallow, too quick. Maybe overly enthusiastic as he's looking at the gods in their backpacks. You can't serve the Lord, he said. He's holy. He's jealous. You're married to him. Remember, you're making a vow. And he will not allow divided loyalty. This is a vow you're making when you choose this day whom you will serve. 
I think many people when they get married have no idea what they're doing. Probably most of us, right? No idea what we're getting into. And I don't know how to remedy that. In fact, in counseling, I'll often say to a couple, what I'm about to say, you will not hear. <laughs> but you have no idea what you're doing. Now, then I encourage them to get married, but we know so little. And yet, if there's honest sincerity and there's the recognition that I'm making a, a vow before God, that should make things different. But you know, what we realize is that people make vows to be married and quickly change on them. The record from my Limited experience, that is, from time married to time divorced, is three months. Someone I married got divorced in three months. I don't think I did a very good job. So Joshua says, no, nah, you don't really mean it. You can't serve the Lord. He's holy. He's jealous. You must forsake all others. To give yourself to God. They said we can. No, no, verse 21. We will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, okay. These stones are witness. You know, I think Joshua realized that these people had a tendency to wander and so he was being a little bit hard on them to make sure the decision was real, genuine, well thought out. The reality is, in Numbers chapter 3 and verse 7, the Israelites, this same generation that said three times in Joshua 24, we will serve the Lord. In Judges 3, 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtaroths. And if you do the math, it's possible that that took place in about five years after Joshua was gone. Could have been a little longer, but it was the same generation. Isn't that sobering? I received Christ as my Savior. I prayed a prayer. No, you didn't. Don't tell me what I did or didn't do. I'm just trying to, to challenge you. Was it a real prayer? Was it an honest prayer from a sincere heart? Or does your life declare to everyone in the world, God is not my God and I'm not married to him? Choose this day. By the way, there's a sense of urgency to it. Joshua knew he was dying. But he knew the people would die if they didn't follow the Lord. So he said, choose this day whom you will serve. Pretty powerful stuff. He says again in verse 23, so for, throw away your foreign gods and yield your heart to the Lord. The whole theology of yielding means dying. It's one of the most Repetitive themes for the Christian life. You must die daily. Jesus said, take up my cross and what? Follow me. What does it mean to take up his cross? Die 
to self. It was the Apostle Paul who said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not me living, it's Christ living in me. And this life, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm dead, but I'm alive because of God. That's the position that Joshua is trying to get these people to. Yield to God alone with everything. So if you are a Christian and you say, I'm dead, then live like it. Live like you're dead to self and alive to God. Too many of us, our commitment is so weak and it's time to recommit. So verse 25, Joshua made a covenant with the people at Shechem Reaffirmed it with laws and decrees, wrote it in a book. Put up a large stone, verse 26, under the oak tree near the holy place, that place of memories, Abraham and Jacob. Verse 27, see, the stone will be a witness against us. So here's the covenant, right? They rehearse the dealings of the past. They make new new stipulations and vows, recommitment, and then there is a witness, and the witness is a stone. There are about nine memorial stones in the book of Joshua. They're constantly putting up stones. The 12 stones when they went across the Jordan River, in the river and in Gilgal when they got to the other side. Stones of judgment upon the kings who rejected them. And now another stone of witness in the valley of Shechem between the mountains. And these will be a witness. When weddings take place, even in our day and time, there has to be a witness. The people who come are witnesses in the presence of God and these witnesses. You are making your vows. We're the stones that should hold a couple to their commitment. All the people saw the stone. They said their vow was genuine. And so Joshua dismisses the people. This is verse 28. And then you have three funerals. I won't go into detail, but it's interesting to note. The first is Joshua's. He dies at 110, and the epitaph on his stone is the servant of the Lord. I like that. The epitaph on Dr. Howard Sugden's gravestone, he walked with God. What will be written on yours? And then the bones of Joseph, verse 32, which they brought up from Egypt. Now, how long have they been gone from Egypt? 60-some years now. Who's got the bones? Every time they would move from one place, who's got the bones? I've got the bones. By the way, Hebrews tells us this was a great act of faith. When before Joseph died, he said to his ancestors, God promised to give you a land, and I know he will, so I want you to carry my bones from Egypt and bury them in the land, and that's exactly what they do. They bury them in Shechem, where his father bought a burial site. And then Eliezer, we haven't heard a whole lot about this guy, but uh, uh, this guy became head priest when his father Aaron died. 
during the wilderness. And now he dies. And God told Moses, get a successor when you die. His name is Joshua, but God said nothing to Joshua about a successor because I think God knew exactly where this nation was going. The book of Judges. End of an era. And the beginning of chaos. But as for me, Joshua said, as for me and my house, not just personally, but collectively as a family, as for me, we will serve the Lord. Can you say that? A line is being drawn in the sand. That's an interesting idiom, isn't it? We use it in English to refer to a momentous decision once made that is irreversible. I suppose the phrase is most famously known from the legend of the Alamo. Or perhaps more correctly from the movie, 1960 movie with John Wayne of the Alamo. It probably didn't happen, we don't know, but it's pretty cool in the movie. Texas is fighting for their independence in a little former Franciscan monastery called the Alamo. There's only about 200 in there. And Santa Ana leading the Mexican troops are coming against this little place and they surround it and they demand surrender. But the people on the inside don't want to surrender. A letter is sent in. You've got famous people there like Jim Bowie of the Bowie Knife fame and Davy Crockett and Colonel William Travis, who's in charge. He reads the letter of surrender and explains that if they don't surrender, it means certain defeat and death. And then legend has it, he pulled out his sword, drew it a line in the sand, and said, I'd rather die than surrender. And he stepped over the line and said, who will step over the line with me? And supposedly everyone did except one. And they all died but they made their choice. You have a choice, but once made, it's irreversible. And God, as it were, like Joshua, draws a line in the sand and says, choose this day whom you will serve. You've got a choice. You say, I've already made it. Maybe time to renew your covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's always more conviction in my heart than conviction I stir up in the hearts of others. And I think it's I think it's time for us as people to repent. And collectively as a church to repent in those areas where we have not died to self and allowed you to be the sovereign Lord. In our selfish ways, former gods we still cling to. Well, we're very much alive. And we have not yet yielded heart and soul to Christ. Lord, we're thankful that anyone who comes to you in faith with the simplest of prayer, if it's a genuine prayer, they are 
saved and redeemed and you'll never lose them as we sang today. No one will pluck them from your hand. But often, Lord, our commitment, sometimes it's weak. It staggers being, being hit by the trials and challenges of life. It's time for us to get up off the mat and stand up strong and say, I choose God forever, forsaking all others. I'm married to him. Lord, make that our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.